Grab your Bible and open it to uh, Hebrews chapter 5. And um, while you're turning, gang, uh, the summer is upon us. I, I think you know that better than I. Um, but there's all kinds of plans that go on here. But one of the big things uh, every summer is this thing called Vacation Bible School. Now, you might think that term a bit anachronistic. We don't, we don't think so. Call it what you like. Um, but it's, here's what it is. It's 500 kids. We, I think we topped over 500 kids every day last year. 500 kids, uh, fifth grade and down, um, that we have in our building that we get to um, teach the scriptures, explain the gospel for five straight days, for, you know, three hours a day. So um, it, it's, it's got to be one of the things that we do well. Uh, I inc- uh, entreat you, um, if you've just been given some thought to um, your involvement in that, it's, um, it's a it's a massive effort. It is indeed. Um, we have men and women that work very hard, um, but it, the investment is for that purpose. It's not to give kids something to do. <laughs> I guess that it does accomplish that, but um, you might want to stop in the desk and, um, and throw in your, uh, your, uh, your week. Uh, for vacation Bible school. Give it some thought. Uh, Hebrews chapter 5, gang. Uh, <laughs> when, when people think of their Bibles and uh, all the passages that they love, um, these are not passages that people <laughs> very frequently mention. Now, when we get to Hebrews chapter 11, people love Hebrews 11, but um, you, you are in a section right in the, the center of the book of Hebrews that is some really tough sledding. I mean, I'm about to read you 11, 11 verses, and you're not going to find a whole lot of eye candy in, in these 11 verses. In fact, what you're going to find is really challenge. I mean, that is to, to get it. Um, but this is a, and I'll explain a little bit more in a minute, but this is vital stuff in terms of our whole understanding of who Jesus Christ is. So gird up the loins of your minds, um, and let's, let's see if we can unravel some of this to our soul's benefit. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward, since he himself is beset with weaknesses. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you, as he says also in another place, You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered, and being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. About this, we have much to say, 
and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. (laughs) The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God, this endures forever. Finally, finally we come to Melchizedek. You know, Dr. Young, I've really I've really been enduring the rest of your series on, on the book of Hebrews uh, so, that I could, so that we could finally get to Melchizedek. I mean, I see it right here in verse 6 and verse 10. Um, because, I mean, this guy's a mystery man. I mean, I'm, I'm looking for somebody to tell me who Melchizedek is. Okay, Dr. Young, go. Give it your best shot. Sorry. Not today. Um, If you look over with me to chapter 7, verse 1, for this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham, returning, etc., etc. That's where Melchizedek is really discussed. Chapter 7, not chapter 5. And um, we're going to get to Melchizedek, but it's going to be over here, not over here. Not today. So if you'll come back, um, I mean, if you're really determined to find out who Melchizedek is, if you'll come back in about four or five weeks, um, we'll get to Melchizedek, but not today. Uh, so if you're, if you're here in chapter 7, I will attempt to uh, scratch you where you itch. <laughs> but it's going to be a while before we get there. Gang, um, you've got to understand something about this section of the book of Hebrews. Um, it is a section that is describing and explaining and highlighting Christ as a priest. Now now look at verse 1, is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God. If you want a definition of a priest, there it is. He acts on behalf of men in relation to God. This is a section that is explaining and discussing and highlighting the priestly role of Jesus Christ. He, He actually as a high priest. It's, it's the role where he acts as a liaison between a sinful man and a holy God. Now, gang, um, listen. Um, the author of the book of Hebrews has got a particular problem on his hands. His audience is a group of converted Jews living in Rome who, because of persecution, because of suffering, are thinking, you know what? we're going to go back to Judaism. I mean, it was easier over there. So let's go back to Judaism. And so this author, the author of Hebrews, is is engaged in a dialogue, well, actually a monologue, with his audience and telling them how absurd that would be for them to do. And so one of the things that he's doing is... um, is arguing with them about the superiority of Jesus Christ over Judaism. Over and over and over and over again he does that. And that's what he's doing here. And you've got to keep that in mind while we, while we work through this passage. My, my plans for this morning are this. Uh, I'd like to move rather hurriedly through verses 1 through 3. So that we can come to, um, so that we can spend the bulk of our time on verses 8 and 9, which are far too challenging for my puny little brain. 
but um, we'll, we'll, um, we'll do our best. But let's, let's try to dispose of verses 1 through 3 rather quickly. We'll, we'll just see. Gang, verses 1 through 3 are a commentary on verse 15 of chapter 4. Now, you remember in, in uh, 4.15, it says, this Jesus, his high priest, can sympathize with our weaknesses, yet without sin. That's the claim made in 4.15. Now, if you'll drop down to chapter 2, and if you'll look at, I mean, chapter 5, and look at verse 2, uh, he's talking about weakness. You see it? Gang, what the author is doing is comparing human high priests... Look, look, he says it in verse 1. For every high priest chosen from among men, he's comparing human high priests with uh, the high priest with specific reference to this issue of weaknesses. He's saying the high priest, Christ, sympathizes with our weaknesses, 415. But then you drop down to chapter 5, and he says, now those, the other high priests, all those human ones, th- they do it too. They sympathize with your weaknesses too, but in an entirely different way. You notice in verse 2 it says, um, he identifies and, and, and suffers with our, or um, empathizes with our weaknesses because he's beset with weaknesses of his own see that it's it's as if oh yeah he can relate to our weaknesses because he's got them himself you know you lose your temper well he loses his temper too um the other thing that is said in verse three is and he has to sacrifice he has to make sacrifices for his own sin before he can ever make sacrifices for mine You see, neither of those things are true of the high priest. They both sympathize, yeah. But Jesus doesn't have weaknesses, and he has no sin. These human high priests, they they have both of those things. And um, again, um, he's trying to communicate the superiority of Christ's priestly role as compared to human priestly roles. Now, there is one thing in those verses that I want you to see. Because he gives us somewhat of a definition of weakness, of the kind of weakness. Um, I mean, when I read this, this really kind of stopped me in my tracks. Uh, You know, the weaknesses, and and, and he uses two adjectives. Do you see them? Ignorant and wayward. (laughs) Now, for the rest of the people in the room, um, those might not relate to you, but... Oh, they did for me. They're ignorant. (laughs) Nobody likes to be called ignorant. Nobody likes to be called stupid. And and, and because we don't, I tell you what let's do. Let's let's just use me as an example. Okay? Um, Guys, um, I pride myself on... on, uh, trying to be open and honest and real with you. But there are some things that, uh, that are true of my non-Christian high school and college days that are not just wicked, 
They are monuments to stupidity. And I don't want you to know about them. Um, I, I don't know whether it's true of you, but it seemed like the more I sinned, the stupider I got. Or at least the more emboldened I got to sin. Um, and I got, the older I got, I mean, the older I got, the stupider I got. It, 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 it's almost as if it moves you, sin moves you to an animal state. Do you remember those days? Oh, yeah. <laughs> All too well. You know, we drank like fools, we partied like animals, and we strutted like peacocks. You know why? Because we were stupid. We were ignorant. And then in my case, this preacher comes into my apartment, Jim Kennedy, and, um, he's, and he says, um, uh, I, I'm here to tell you that heaven is a free gift. And I said, what? What? What's that you say? Well, <laughs> I've never heard of that before. <laughs> no, you haven't. Because I was ignorant. Now, guys, here's the point. On people like that, this text tells us that Christ has sympathy. People who, because of their sin, have become stupider and stupider on those kind of folks, like me. Um, he has sympathy. And then the other thing is the word wayward. Um, going astray. Um, you know, I... I um, I called myself a Christian. I mean, I went to church a whole lot, and then I went off to college. And um, the truth of who I really was became obvious to all. Um, or may maybe your story's like this. You know, I, 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 I was really involved in my church, uh, you know, uh, uh, back in Dyersburg. Um, but then I went off, then I moved to Atlanta, uh, Nashville, Memphis. And I've been wandering ever since. Oh, I, I used to follow God. Yeah, oh yeah. Uh, then I enlisted in the army. And I have been going astray ever since. Here's the good news, guys. All of us who were once wanderers we are told in this passage that our high priest has sympathy. You know, I was moved by that because what God could have called me, he could have said, Jimmy Young, you are a despicable wretch. That would have been true. He could have said that, but he didn't say that. He says he was weak. He understands my frame. Jesus Christ is not a marble statue of, or some kind of sack of sawdust, but he, has, he sympathizes with my weaknesses. That's the Savior that we need. Now, 
All of that brings us to the two verses um, that are far too big for my puny little brain. In fact, at this point, ladies and gentlemen, you need a perfect preacher. You need an angel up here to preach about these two verses. Verses 8 and 9. But you don't have an angel. You have me. You're stuck with me. Guys, do you you see the obvious problem as a result of verses 8 and 9? Do you see it? It's pretty clear. How does deity learn anything? You. Well, here's the short answer. He takes on flesh. He didn't have any of that before. He becomes a man. He he wasn't that before. He leaves heaven, heaven where there's no temptation and there's um, there's no suffering and there's no limitations. And he takes on flesh, becomes a man, and comes here where he finds all of that. That is the temptation, the suffering, and the limitation. Um, all he has to do to learn or to pick up something is to pick up flesh. And that's what he did. He stooped. He stooped to learn what living in a fallen world felt like. So that he could sympathize with my, sympathize with my weaknesses. Gang, that may not appear to be a big deal to you, but it certainly appears to be a big deal to the Holy Spirit. Do you notice how he starts verse 8? You notice that? He says, um, um, although he was a son. That's very emphatic. Do you get what he's saying? Although he was a son. It is as if to say, if anybody should have never had to suffer, it should have been the son. But guys, here's why that's a big deal for us. Listen to me. Sonship does not exempt you from suffering. God has one son without sin, but he has zero sons without suffering. In fact, sons can suffer so much that they could sweat blood. And that's pretty good news. For this reason, what that means is You are as much a son in your pain as you are in your good times. It means that your pain does not make you less of a son or or make you an inferior son or even mean that God is mad at you. You see, verse 8 says, although... He was a son. And he learned obedience through suffering. 
guys, um, all Christians, all sons, we go to school, and suffering is our teacher, just like Christ. Um, and we are taught in this unwelcome classroom, we are taught to obey. You know, guys, if in the midst of your own suffering you've ever asked the question, why? And I guess you probably have. We all have, haven't we? If in the midst of your own pain you're asking why, well, this is at least part of the answer. You're being perfected. You see, that's what it says about Christ. So, so was he. It was that, this process of enduring human suffering that perfected him. That's something that he couldn't get in heaven. Um, perfected him before God, perfected him before us. So guys, I'm standing here and I'm offering you a perfect, a perfect high priest. Those other guys, they couldn't be perfect high priests. You don't want to go back to that because, you know, they got their own sin to deal with. They're, they're beset with weaknesses, but not this one. He's perfected. Christ had to undergo the process which made him completely fit for his role as Savior. And you know how he did that? He just came and lived with us for a while. That's what theologians call his humiliation. He leaves his home in glory. He ended up despised and rejected of men and nailed to a cross. And through his suffering, he was perfected. You know, what are those nails in his hands? What is that gash in his side? Oh, they're just... They're just signs of his perfection. Guys, um, whatever it costs us to learn obedience, it will never cost us what it costs Christ. Whatever price you think you're paying, um, in the midst of your pain, it will never be as high as the one that he paid. Now, then verse 9 says, having been perfected, he became the source of an eternal salvation. You know, the Greek is in that verse is pretty difficult to translate because the word source is not in it. Uh, the Greek word genomai is, and, and out of that, uh, the translators, some, some translations have the word author. That's fine too. They're, they're both good words. Having been perfected, he becomes, he became the author, the source of an eternal salvation. Now, guys, um, I told you, this is, a, this is a passage where the author is trying to show his audience the superiority of Christ. And one of the things that he uses to show the superiority 
is to talk about salvation. No. <laughs> That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about an eternal salvation. Um, Jesus Christ is the source of not simply salvation, but eternal salvation. In fact, I would say to you, the key word's eternal. There's nothing temporary about it. I don't go in and out of it. Uh, once I have it, I never lose it. Guys, um, what is eternal if it can be lost? You know, it seems that the Christian church never gets enough of the debate over whether or not a Christian is eternally secure. Guys, Jesus was the source of what? Something temporary. Something on and off. Something back and forth. No! The salvation of which he is the source, the salvation of which he is the author, is a salvation that is eternal. My friend, if you are seated here today and you've got it, it is my joy to inform you you will never lose it. Not because its maintenance depends upon you or your behavior. Boy, that would be scary because I can, I can fully assure you that you're going to blow it in terms of your behavior somewhere down the, 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 the road here. But if you reject either of those premises, that is, that, that salvation is eternal and that its maintenance does not depend on my behavior. If you reject either one of those, you are placing yourself in a world of constant insecurity. Forever being insecure, because you're constantly going to be wondering, am I in or am I out? And oh, you know, last week I did that. I, 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 must have, I must be out now. Oh, I was in week before last, but I'm out now because I did that. Ladies and gentlemen, I don't say you live like that. Um, the salvation that Jesus authored, having been perfected by his sufferings, is a salvation that's, that's eternal. Now, you comforted? I hope so. In fact, you, you should be. Um, because what we're discussing here in this section of the book of Hebrews, we're, we're discussing this role that Christ plays as our priest. Um, I said this a couple of weeks ago. I, let me say it again. Have you ever wondered, you know, at some point in your spiritual life, Oh, that did it. 
I mean, God has been giving me mercy again and again and again. But, you know, I, I wonder if, he, if it's ever going to come to the point where God says, that's enough. I've had it with him. No more. That's not going to happen, ladies and gentlemen, because of the priestly role played for you by Christ himself. The relationship that I have with him is an eternal one, one that will not be lost. So there should be comfort in that, but there's something even, I I, I guess, even more important as we close. Um, There's something even more important than than our comfort. And, And it's this. This is the Savior, this is the high priest with whom the Father is fully satisfied. That is, God said that. He said, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. The, um, the high priest being described here in Hebrews 5 and throughout the next four chapters, that's the one with whom the Father is completely satisfied. That one. The Father is satisfied with him. Are you satisfied with him? Is this the Savior that you have, or have you, have you manufactured your own? What? I mean, how, how could I manufacture my own Savior? Well, let me tell you how that happens. I, I see it frequently. You know, life um, unfolds and, and uh, you know, you come to a place in your life, whether, it's, whether I, uh, it's just a hardship or I did something where I really blew it. You know, the details vary. Um, but uh, I come to a place where I get a sense of, um, I don't know, conviction. And in the midst of my, my, my spiritual arousal here, um, because my life is a big old mess, I turn to myself for help. Um, I, I seek a refuge in self. How do you do that? Well, you, you, you concentrate on cleaning up your outward behaviors. You, uh, you instigate a, a, a process of moral reform. You, you, you get religious. You start to go to church. You, 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 you try to pray some. Believing that through all those things, I'm going to make my evil self a good self. And by that, ladies and gentlemen, we have designed, we have invented a Savior that looks curiously very much like myself. My Savior looks like that man who's in the mirror. Spurgeon used to say this, and I loved this. Spurgeon used to stand in this pulpit and he would, he would cry out to the audience, Oh, to wean the sinner from the breast of self. <laughs> oh, to wean the sinner from the breast of self. See, what you've done is you have a savior of self-design, not the one described in Hebrews 5. 
I'm going to save myself by being moral. Because after all, isn't that what God is after? No. I'll tell you what he's after. He wants you to come to the Savior that he provided. The one that is being described in Hebrews chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. My hunch is, my hunch is that you'll never chunk that Savior that you designed until you've seen the beauty of this one. Oh, that you might see the beauty. this Savior. Our Father, um, I cannot open men's eyes to see that beauty, but, but so many eyes have been opened to see that the Savior that you provided is the one that we need, not the one that we design. Um, it was... Um, 44 years ago or so when you opened my eyes to see that beauty and would you do it again um, for others would you cause young men and women to see that what they've been trying to do to remedy their their crises is simply suckling at the breast of self and would you wean them from that father by the power of the holy spirit drawing them to the place where they see this Savior to be the one that they need. Thank you for providing uh, the remedy for my stupidity, my waywardness, and so many others of us glory in that eternal salvation that you have granted us by sovereign grace. Now, Lord, do it, do, it, do it again. Do it more. Do it more frequently. Use us to broadcast the beauty of this Savior. And we pray, of course, in Jesus' name. Amen.